This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Divine Echoes, reconciling prayer with the uncontrolling love of God. How the heck does petitionary prayer work in a world where there's so much suffering and evil? Is praying for others just a religious, superstitious practice that does nothing at all except make the person praying feel better? If we don't pray for others, does God allow them to get sicker, lose potential rent money, and suffer in their addictions? Is that who God really is? Can we engage in prayer that is more effective, less harmful, and doesn't make God look like an unfair, stingy, and fickle jerk? If you are looking for a pioneering book on prayer that is thought-provoking, challenging, and endorsed by some of today's most well-known authors and scholars, then Divine Echoes is the book for you. Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is not church with john and nat turney hey john push the button that means it's time to start so i have to say my thing like all right all right all right hey you know did you did you see that matthew mcconaughey is what he's gonna be in a new yellowstone like origin story i thought you were gonna say he's finally gonna run for governor of texas oh dear god i hope not no just keep making cold tv shows man i know but he can maybe fix your state um, we're beyond fixing. <laughs> at, at this point, we're just hoping to hold out until the end, man. Greg Abbott's going to take us on to victory. Come on, Greg. Um, why am I talking about this? I haven't even introduced the podcast. I still am of the opinion, John, that people who have clicked the link know. But maybe they need that reassurance. Like you click the hope, link. I would hope they know, then, but you know. And then you say, and, then, and, the, and they hear the name of the podcast. And they go, okay, I, I clicked the right one. So this is not church. <laughs> Or this is this is not church. This still is still the most awkward church. name of a podcast that anyone could have come up with. <laughs> this is this is not church. Um, brought to you today by the blockbuster new book Seeds of Deconstruction, <laughs> written by uh, some dude named Nat Turney. Uh, available now uh, on Amazon. You should probably go get a copy. Wow! Throws in an ad for himself. It's my show. It's our show. <laughs> when you have a book, when yours is published, I'll, I will, I will bring it up. All right, weekly. I am actually super, super excited. It's doing, it's doing well, I think. I don't know. It's hard to tell. I don't know. I'm afraid to ask about actual like sales numbers, but it, uh, it's managed to find its place into a couple of number one spots on Amazon. So check nice. it out, man. I can add like, like best selling author to my resume. You can. I mean, I could have before. It didn't have to be true. I mean, but <laughs> this is the, this is again the podcast. My name is Nat. Award-winning author of uh, of at least one book. <laughs> See, that, that part I made up. I actually I actually gave myself an award. <laughs> I was like best new author in West Texas in 2023. Yes, I accept. I'm going to give my acceptance speech at the end of this podcast. Oh, okay. Uh, up on the other side of the screen is my is my brother John, who is. Uh, I, I, keep, I have to stop picking on you about being my, my less good-looking older brother. I know. I listened to your episode on Messy Spirituality Podcast where you told me I was the less good-looking older brother. Again, I mean, like... And, and you I say, said, well, but he just shakes his head at it and kind of moves on. Yeah, you're right. I do. Whatever. Yeah, and then you go... And then, the, when, the, <laughs> then when you click stop and close the computer up, you go, you, you go cry into your pillow. Mm-hmm. I get that. You know, it's okay, John. You're allowed to feel your feelings. Understand, I just attack you out of jealousy. Oh, okay. Is that what um, it is? That's so, what we're going with? Well, when you look out your window right now, you see the rolling hills of Northern California. So I do. You see... It's 95 here, though, so I'm getting closer to your temperature. But I look outside and see my neighbor and cactus <laughs> and an oil derrick 
and I think, what the fuck am I doing living here, man? Come on. I was, anyway, you know, so. Hey, I was a week ago. I was looking at that as I as as we rolled down the uh, I five, and all I saw was well, actually, it was cattle. You know, Harris Ranch, right by Bakersfield, oil, oil drill, oil wells, and yeah, just dirt and like. Like wind turbines? Are there a bunch of wind turbines on the vibe? Uh, not so much on that part of it. There are earlier, but yeah, but it was 110 through the whole valley there. We actually had to pull over my car. My car's uh, transmission overheated. We had to pull over into some random gas station. How fun is that? Just sit, oh, not fun at all. Not fun at all. We are on our... Um, I think we're on our 60th straight day of triple-digit weather. Yeah, I don't miss that. And we have broken nearly every record that my part of Texas has had to break. So needless to say, we're over it, man. Good job. So, but all of that is to say that this is the podcast. This is not church, because if it was church, uh, you'd have left by now. <laughs> you might have left already anyway, you know? Right. I mean, just <laughs> be told, you clicked on it, you went, what is this bullshit? And you went like, I'm out. So before we lose any more audience members, we should get to the good stuff, which is uh, introducing our guest. We are always, man, we just, John, we just, it's an embarrassment of riches. Really, it is. Isn't it really it? is. It I is. mean, and I don't mean that flippantly at all. I mean, we we are just like every time we get we get somebody booked on the show, I'm like, oh my gosh, that person is amazing. Even if I don't know who they are, w- once I find out about them, I'm like, oh yeah, that's a person I really would love to talk to. I mean, with only one exception, but I'll leave I'll leave that to your imagination. <laughs> Which one, Baxter? No, I'm just kidding, Baxter. You're my... <laughs> no, no, he's, he's never, never going to come back. back. On the... <laughs> never coming back. But let me let me take a second. Let me introduce you to our guest this afternoon or this morning or whatever time it is happens to be. I have to stop doing that and putting like time frames. Yeah. Maybe you're li- if you're like me, you're listening to podcasts at like two in the morning because you can't sleep. That's yeah. what I do. Um, but anyway, so here we go. We have with us today Sarah Stancorb, and she has written hundreds of reported articles and essays which have appeared in publications including uh, the Washington Post, New York Times, Vogue, Marie Claire, Glamour, and Vice. She studied religion and philosophy at Westminster College and ethics and South Asian religion and history at the University of Chicago's Divinity School. Her beat spans religion, politics, gender, and power informed by questions of basic morality. This means investigating wrongdoing. It can mean reporting on how people find the strength to prevail. Uh, Sarah lives in Ohio with her husband and her two children, and we are here to talk about all kinds of stuff, but also her brand new book called Disobedient Women. Um, by the way, that's an awesome title. I love that. I have a lady at work that says uh, she's got a thing sitting in her window that says, well-behaved women rarely make history. And I'm like, yes. Yeah, no one remembers those people. We need disobedient women. So with all of that being said, welcome to the podcast. Sarah, how are you today? I'm doing pretty well. How You should seem jovial. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Yes. That's an, that's yeah. an apt description. We're jovial. It, I don't think it means we don't take things seriously, but come on, man. It's just life. I mean, we all got to get through it. So... Um, if nothing else, we're going to have a good time. What, let me ask you a, a real quick question, if you don't mind. If, tell us a little bit more about yourself than just your bio. I mean, what's your, uh, if you're comfortable sharing maybe your religious background, if you have one, how that's kind of informed what you do and what, what you study and where you're going, any of that would be fantastic. Sure. So I was initially raised Presbyterian, like Presbyterian Church USA, and then United Methodist. So super middle of the road, Average American Protestant. Um, my mom 
kind of didn't care what I believed as long as I went to church every Sunday. So I spent, as soon as they would let me into the adult area of the library, I just lived in the religion stacks. Um, I've always been very fascinated by what other people believe. So I was... As a teenager, I read astrology books and books about Hinduism and basically anything I could get my hands on. Um, but toward the end of high school, I sort of just kept running into evangelical circles. And I wouldn't say I became an evangelical, but I was sort of sideswiped by it. <laughs> and I had a little phase of watching 700 Club and my friends saying, what the hell are you doing? And I learned that you had to be saved, which was not the language I'd ever encountered. And the pressure to be saved and the pressure to be this right kind of Christian really warped the faith that I had before, which was pretty wide open and based in love and this accepting version of what God might be. And once I went down that biggest rabbit hole and I went to college and actually read the Bible and learned the history of the Bible, that version of my faith just fractured and I quit. I quit believing for a while. I call myself an atheist. I'm more of an agnostic at this point. I interview so many people with such different types of faith that I think it would be pretty egotistical of me to say, no, all of you are wrong. But at the same time, I'm not certain who's got a fallen accurate portrait of the metaphysical. Amen Contentedly, I don't know, but I'm still very curious. When you were talking, what I was thinking about was, so I grew up in, I grew up evangelical, and it used to bother me how little they encouraged us to, to study, read outside of our tradition, all of those things. And now as you were talking, I'm like, well, of course they did. Because as soon as you start to investigate, all of their, their little house of cards come, it doesn't survive that kind of scrutiny. Right. I mean, had they had they raised us with with an eye towards being curious and to hold things a little loosely and to be investigative and all of this stuff, I don't I don't think there would have been that danger of oh my god they're going to go out in the world, you know they're going to take one anthropology class in college and go this is all horseshit. Um, right. Right. <laughs> but what they had built for us was so rigid and so certain and so concrete that it. it it either, you either had to completely go into denial phase, which a lot of my friends did, or you had to go, maybe they've been lying to me. And it's a bummer because, you know, I really wanted to go to seminary when I was, um, when I was in middle school. That was my plan. I was going to, you know, I wanted to go to a, I don't want to go to Bible college. I want to go to seminary. I want to go to, and, and I was discouraged heavily because those were liberal bastions of, you know, academic elites. And that was the, my, my youth pastor called it cemetery because that's, you know, where your faith goes to die. And, you know, sadly, I, I, I listened and I didn't, you know, I, I didn't, I never, never pursued that. But is that a, you know, before we jump into the book, obviously, but is that, is that a fair assessment of, of the danger of sort of raising up kids with that sort that, that's such a rigid belief system that it won't necessarily withstand? 
Yeah, so I actually was talking to someone else about this this morning. I, I think because evangelicalism is not, it's not like a denomination. There's no set theology. It's more of a marketplace where people kind of gather different texts, different books, different teachings. They're self-reflective. And I think you can intentionally refer to many of the, their friends or cronies, some people might say, <laughs> in similar ministries. But in, in that way, it's, it's a loosely closed system. But if you're, it also contains its own inherent logic. And if something falls out of that logic too far, then it's almost as if you're speaking a different language. And I think one of the interesting dynamics is people who are born into it, like yourself, who then depart or are critical, they still speak that mother tongue, they still speak that language of evangelicalism, but they're outside of it. And that cognitive dissonance, like, how did you leave this, is very threatening to a system that's not, not fully stable and that really does require you to accept a lot of um, a lot of points that may or may not be able to stand all their own. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of, for me, there's a lot of internal inconsistencies. You know, and, and it's fine. I'm actually, in, 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 I'm, at, I'm at a place in my life and in my faith and whatever where I'm fine with those inconsistencies, uh, but we need to be honest about those. And so the, the, part, the problem wasn't the inconsistencies. The problem was the insistence that there weren't any. You know, it's kind of like approaching the Bible and saying, oh, just because, you've, just because you perceive it as having errors, that just means you're not reading it correctly. No, 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 it's perfect. The problem lies with the reader, not with the text. And then having to go, okay, well, let's do some mental gymnastics to figure that one out. Um, you can't even get through the, you can't even get through the first couple chapters of Genesis without going, well, some of this doesn't make any sense. There's two creation stories here. Why? You know? Yes. Well, well no, no, no. Don't worry about it. That'll, you know, you, or they'll use, they'll use this wonderful word of mystery as a dismissive catch-all. Like it's, it's not, oh my gosh, the world is a mystery and God is, is, is this something that we will spend our lifetimes trying to understand. It's no, don't bother trying to understand that. It's a, it's a mystery. It's beyond you. And so it wasn't until some people came along in my life, you know, in the last five or 10 years where that word did not have as much of a negative connotation to me. And it was because it wasn't just being used to, to silence or stifle. It wasn't saying, don't bother, don't bother thinking about this. It's a mystery. Um, they were like, no, 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 no. We dig in because it's a mystery, right? <laughs> and to me, those things, I, I feel like I feel like it's very short-sighted. And you make a good point. Evangelicalism is is a very loosely affiliated. Uh, we had a couple of people on the show who are who are uh, brilliant historians, and they've they've done a lot of work on this. And they'll say, well, you know, evangelicalism as a group never really coalesced around a theology. Um, it, it always ever coalesced around um, one or two social issues that they could glom onto and say, okay, we really need to, we really need to deal with this abortion issue. And so all of a sudden they have, they have at least one coalescing, you know, governing principle. They can say, well, no, we're anti-abortion. Then once that thing sort of, you know, or they'll, or they'll jump onto LGBTQ issues and they'll gotta protect our children from the drag queens. Um, 
sure. Protect them from your pastors first. That'd be great. So how, how then, if, if one is to take issue with that group, you can't really come after them doctrinally because there's such a variety of points of view there. Is it, is it even worthwhile pushing back against it or what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think a parallel conversation that comes when a woman in particular is challenging a set of ideas, we'll call it that, instead of a theology. It's it's even beyond, oh, it's just a mystery. It's you're not equipped. You're, you're wrong, dear. <laughs> like, you need, <laughs> right? you need a man to interpret yeah. that for you. Oh Clearly, gosh. you are incorrect. So I think there's that additional layer of silencing, and it's a similar tactic but when that's also based in to recommendations that you submit to your husband or your father and that you submit in all of these ways and then add on purity culture, add on all these other requirements, it's, it's an awful lot to challenge and it takes a lot of emotional and probably spiritual um, energy to push back. Yeah. Well, I want to step back to something you said earlier where uh, like you said, even people who have left the evangelical movement or whatever you want to call it still still live in this idea and this culture and they use this language, right? It still is in, it's imbued in them to the point where, and, and I'm a, you know, I don't want to say I'm a perfect example, but I am an example of that, right? I left the church when I was 19. I was raised on, and we talked about a little bit about this before we started recording. I was raised, Nat and I were raised pre-purity culture, you know, we weren't, we weren't handing out promise rings. We weren't doing that kind of bullshit, but we were definitely told that, you know, the way a woman dresses determines how she will be, how, how she will make men react or boys react. Right. So, but I left that at 19. So fast forward. So I'm 19. I got married when I was 21 to an atheist thinking, okay, you know, I've, I've, I've done my, my part in breaking from the evangelical movement by going as far afield as I can by marrying an atheist. But built into me was this idea of what a woman's role is. And if we're going to be at, have a nice, safe, quiet environment, my wife needs to not work. My wife needs to, you know, when I come home, there should be food, you know, there should be dinner available to me. Uh, my wife worked, right? So that was the first like hurdle I had to come across. Uh, she was already working before we met. Um, fast forward again, nine more years to where we decided we were adult enough, and I'm using huge air quotes on that, to have children. My first child, our, our first child was a daughter. So I had de- definite opinions on what I expected of a daughter. And it wasn't until my daughter got to a point where she had a voice to tell me that everything that I expected of her was bullshit that I finally come to the realization that I had been so indoctrinated into what the evangelical idea of what the female male roles are and that I had pushed away when I was 19. I'm now 20, 30 years old. I'm still dealing with the fucked up reality of my life that I don't even understand how to, how to communicate with my daughter or my wife. And it was literally my daughter, you know, arguing with me on her way to high school, you know, on these day in, day out conversations where I finally had to just say, 
I have been so messed up for so long that I don't even understand how to even talk to a female without antagonizing and making them feel less than me. So I can't even imagine what it's like for someone who is indoctrinated and stays in that, right? I left it and it was still so powerful of an umbrella over me that I can't even imagine what women who live in a, in a culture where, the, where they, are, they have been brainwashed into thinking that men have the authority over them, period. I can't even imagine. I mean, the, the stories you tell, and I, I want to, you know, I don't want to give away too much of the book, but the way you tell these stories, I, I really find intriguing because a lot of these stories you leave almost without an ending. And I don't know if that was done on purpose or not. They're kind of left ambiguous. And then you kind of move on to another. And like I said, I'm only about 50, 50% into this, into the book. So you can correct me if I'm wrong, if some of this actually does get resolution, but I really like how you kind of leave us to kind of fill in some of the gaps of the, of these stories. And if, if you did that on purpose, uh, bravo to you. But I, 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 I would like you to talk about, you know, like I said, I broke away so early and still had all these issues. What is it like for specifically women? You know, because I can talk about the, the the male side of it all day long and 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 have a pretty accurate idea of what's going on. But I I'm still at 53 years old. I still don't understand the detriment to women within the evangelical movement and what it has done to them. So oh, this is a huge question. Um, <laughs> you you mentioned earlier Linda K. Klein, who wrote right. the book Pure. That was the first time I became aware of sexual dysfunction for women raised in purity culture and in these communities. So even as adults, even if they completely leave the church like you did, that, that grain of early modeling about what a woman is expected to do remains. So there is one side where they're expected to be completely virginal, completely cover their bodies, do not attempt a man if a man has even a lustful thought, that's your fault. So they are supposed to open that to the wedding night where they are expected to be completely sexually available to their husband. If their husband gets drawn astray, if he has an affair, that's their fault. So you haven't gotten there yet, but later in the book, there are stories of marital rape. Women who, due to church teaching, don't know they can say no. Um, and it's just devastating. And what that does to a relationship and in a family is just awful. But they think it's their Christian obligation. So with that, like these are not these married women are not necessarily enjoying sex. And you'll see studies about that within like websites like Bare Marriage. Uh, there's been work on that. But I think also like stepping back to the earlier stages, part of the book I think you've read these young girls who are expected to be quote unquote pure. When something happened, whether it was with a boy or a pastor or if they were assaulted, they believed it was their fault because the man would not have attempted to do what he did. And in some cases, commit a crime. They don't see it as a crime. 
You see, it, and because that's how it was coded within the church. And then they not only experience something with lasting trauma, they don't know this is criminal necessarily. They don't know to get help. And they don't, they don't feel comfortable even admitting it because they feel like they caused it. They brought it on themselves. And I think that's also one of the ways abuse has been allowed to be so rampant because that silencing factor, because people didn't talk about it, it allowed predators, people who serially would abuse people, to just move on to the next person. And you didn't have communication to say, like, no, this is wrong. And even when you did, sometimes the church would just move them off to another church with a farewell party. So it's, but I think a lot of those threads, um, the, 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 uh, the way that many women process what happened to them, it does have roots in what they were taught about sexuality and purity culture. And they definitely were not taught about consent. They just weren't. Well, and, and, as you know, I work. I work in an environment where you know it's very structured on what what is allowed and what is not allowed, right? Within the industry, and we are trained, and our employees are trained on what is what is okay and what is not okay, and when does when do things cross the line, right? So I I've worked with that environment for quite a few years, but it seems like within the church, they have done a very good job of saying. It's much more important to hide these moments where somebody, quote unquote, crosses the line for the betterment of the overarching story of God saving everybody, right? So mm-hmm. specifically women, also men to a certain extent, right? So we yes. gotta, we, we yes. have to, we have to acknowledge that some of this stuff happens between, so say like a youth pastor male and a youth pastor yeah. uh, yes. boy, which again, holds a, 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 a different, right? There's, there's the like women. And I don't want, I don't want to make one sound like it's more important than the other. I think they're very, very similar. They both have this level of, you don't want to talk about it because it makes you feel less than who you're supposed to be, right? So when it comes to women being brought into, like you talk about in the book, brought into the pastor's office or brought into the youth pastor's office, and maybe it's not overtly sexual at the beginning, but it's already past the point of this is no longer okay. First of all, bringing a woman or young girl, sorry, young girl, I don't, I don't want to make them older than they are. These are young girls who cannot consent to this, what's happening to them. So bringing them into the privacy of either an office or a home by a youth pastor is already questionable. The, why, why is this happening? Why, why would you allow this? And then those are the first quote unquote steps in toward indoctrinating them into, uh, this idea that is, hey, as long as you and I stay quiet about this, you know, the betterment of the, the whole church will be that we are, we are finding our way towards God, right? Which is just sick. I mean, it's just, it's just sick. I mean, there's nothing you, Again, you don't, you, uh, again, I've only read, read a, a half the book. Uh, you talk about, you kind of, you kind of like, Kind of skirt around some of these ideas of where these where these relationships go. Is it Gothard? 
Yes. It yeah. sounds like, and I'm not going to pretend like these, these, these relationships didn't go farther than what you write in the book, because I think they did. But these stories talk about, you know, inappropriate touching, inappropriate, you know, like all that. But that in itself is just grossly inappropriate without even, without even delving into where these relationships could have gone or did potentially did go. Right. Mm-hmm. Is it getting people alone part of this off an Ebb's couch in um, I'm going to pray with you or in terms of counseling? So it, I will say and, um, in the Gothard portion of the book, um, what I've seen, the patterns I've seen in the interviews and in the class action case it seemed like the accusations that were more severe tended to be people who are already abuse survivors once, who had to confide about abuse they'd already experienced. And so I, I, I don't know, but I would assume from what I've read about how these things work, that they that shows some vulnerability to abuse, that um, and that they weren't able to stop it before. Um, and I think the young, the girls and young women who had never encountered, had never held hands, had never had an hand touch them anywhere, that for them, the, the line where they would have really been afraid, it, was, it wasn't as far out. So, and I think having that knowledge and having that, counseling role as a trusted person in your life, it also gives people access to information that's easy to exploit. And I, I would go as far as, and, you know, and, I, and I'm not afraid to like call it what it is. So, you know, first of all, he, he, he is a sicko. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know how else to explain it. So it, just getting whatever jollies he was off of just sitting super close, playing footsies, making sure that they were you know, touching leg, you know, leg to leg, uh, making them uncomfortable to make him feel sexually powerful is already gross. It just is. Uh, and I don't care. I don't care if that's as far as it ever went. That's already gross. But what it does is it starts to create an environment where the girls in this situation feel like this is the norm. This is what is expected of me. So now they move into relationships with men from the same church or the same environment. And this is what is expected of them is to kowtow and to accept whatever perversion their now boyfriend, well, of course, husband, right? Because you can't have sex outside of marriage, but whatever perversions, because they have been groomed to accept this because this is God's will, because their only play, their only reason for being, and you talk about this, and this is also scary as hell. Their only reason to be here is to fill the quiver, right? To create a, a, a mass of children who will then defend the God that we worship to the detriment of their health, which you talk about in this book, right? That these women have child after child after child after doctors are saying, you need, you, you cannot continue to survive this. But as long as they survive and have a child that is viable, that is their consent that God is that God is on their side and God wants them to continue to do this. And that's, in my opinion, is is again just grooming. It's uh, it's sadistic. 
it's it's inhuman to to a certain level, right? Yeah, it really is. So there's this idea of a maternal mission field. So it's something that came up in, I don't know if you before were familiar with the name Mary Pride, but she was very influential in Christian homeschooling. So a lot of the ways this information was transmitted to mothers, younger women within these communities is through homeschool conferences. So you go, you pick up your curricula for your kids, you meet other moms who are doing this very difficult thing. And someone recommends a book because this author has whole guides on homeschooling, surely. She's also an expert on being a mother in a homeschooling environment. And her writing is really shocking, but it, it encourages women that, you know, your your womb is, uh, that's where we produce Christian babies. And if we want to outnumber people in this country with Christian babies, if women had, you know, at least six babies of Christian women, at least six babies or more, soon we would outpopulate these other folks. But also inherent in that idea of being a missionary is, yeah, you may get sick, you may die. And if you die, then you'll have been a martyr for Christ. And that that weight is substantial, but like at the heart of so much of this, these are people who desperately want to do the right thing. They want to do what is godly. And they find people who other people respect in their faith communities. And they lay those roles on their lives. And the reality is for a lot of people, it just doesn't work. But they're too afraid to say so. Because then they're not a good Christian woman or a good Christian man. It's really just, it's very, it's very, very sad. You mentioned something earlier that I, I picked up on a word you used and you were, used the word coded. Mm-hmm. So talk about that. How are we coding our language to cultivate this kind of reality for folks? I think there are times when, oh, in like the homeschooling movement and in the origins of that movement, you'll have a reputation of certain terms. So you need to protect your children from public education, from worldly people. So worldly is out there, it's other, but in here you're safe. Um, there's a lot of language around discipline and how to discipline children to protect them spiritually. And the stories I've read and gathered over the years of kids raised in homes, that, you know, read there, James Dobson, and they were subject to the pearls, and they were subject to really awful corporal punishment. Um, and I've read about this in the comments. I hear from people raised this way too, and they wonder, how did my parents do this? Like they're, they're so loving, they cared so much about being godly people. How did they? How did they hurt me? How did they train me that being hurt was normal? And I think the coding part there is that good parenting means 
being doing these practices, doing things like blanket training, because though I I don't know I've never spanked my children, but there, I've interviewed people who've been a part of it that regretted it later, and I, the best I can come up with is they thought they were taking care of their kids. They were told they read this is what you have to do to protect their soul. It may hurt their body temporarily, but you're protecting their soul. So the coding in that for me is like taking words like discipline, which nothing wrong with raising children with discipline, right? Teaching them to 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 be good people and respect boundaries and having healthy boundaries and all that stuff. But the code word for discipline in Christian, well, in some Christian circles is corporal punishment. So, you know, they, they misinterpret verses like spare the rod and spoil the child. And next thing you know, we're supposed to beat the hell out of our kids. It, you're right about the pressure. I'm 51 years old. I've, all my kids are grown. I wish I could say I never spanked my kids. I can tell you I didn't very often. I never was very comfortable with it even though there was an enormous amount of pressure to, if you loved your kids, you should, you know, my wife will tell you, we had knockdown drag outs about, you know, I, I don't like this. I think there's better ways to do this. And sometimes um, the coding won out. And I'm like, well, I do love my kids and I don't want them to grow up to be a little shithead. So maybe I need to whack them on the backside a little bit. In their memories, I beat the hell out of them all the time. I can tell you for a fact, I did not. But that tells you the power of those actions. That even though it wasn't very often, even though in my memory it was, it was very, in their memories, a couple of them at least, they got spanked all the time. It's enough for a child. It's traumatic enough to say exactly what you just said, which is why, why, why would you do this to me? I'm thankful all of my kids have pretty much committed to not doing that to their kids. So at least we've, we've made one generational step. James Dobson is, I, I, I lay a lot of that at his feet because my, my wife and her mom and, you know, lots of, lots of people are, that surrounded us were like, you need to be reading these books by James Dobson, who 100% um, says you need to do this if you love your kids. But the, the, the coding too, I want to ask you about this too. Aside from the obvious sort of hanging this, this, this notion around women's necks that their, their highest calling in life is to be moms. Number one, Obviously, we've talked about what what happens when you when you take that way too far. What does that do to the to the psychology or the the self esteem or whatever to women who can't have children? Yeah, I mean it's the the it's almost like the plight of single women. Single women are so often just forgotten in these conversations. Like you're not even married, but if you're not having children, the the correlation becomes birth equals God's blessing. So if you're not giving birth, you're not receiving God's blessing. Well, why is that? And people fill in the gaps and think, well, it's something I did. Now, people like author also at the same time discourage adoption because he had convoluted ideas that a child could carry the sins of its parents and you don't know the parents, so you may be a Satan in your home. Gothard, Gothard also um, encouraged people to have vasectomy and tubulation reversals. So I had multiple sources who attended these conferences as children and then as young adults and into adulthood described scenes at IBLP conferences where people would be invited onto the stage carrying their reversal babies to show off God's blessing. And then the reversal babies would be part of this beautiful choir 
of you know, miracles that never would have happened if not for Bill Gothard's advice and not for reversing and having as many children as possible. It's, it's very, it's very, so to be in that environment and not be able to reproduce, even if you want to, it, it really is, it's devastating. But then the, the women who do, I mean, I have two children. There are enough that I cannot handle. <laughs> so you put yourself all day long in a home. You're feeding them. You're laundering everything for them. You're navigating all these children. Well, you have to discipline them. And that's part of that other conversation. Um, but also, then you're also responsible for educating them, which like, I, I learned during lockdown. I'm not necessarily equipped to be a math teacher. Um, but whether, whether you are or not, you're expected to do it. And many of these kids who keep up in these environments, partly because the mothers were just so overwhelmed, had an educational neglect. On the other side, say they were brought up in IVLP, their homeschool curricula, but have only been Gothard's wisdom booklets, which he claims were based solely on the Sermon on the Mount, which isn't really, but it also is in a comprehensive education. And it's his version of reality sort of loosely tied to the Sermon on the Mount. And that's, for some of them, that's all they've got. So it's... It's weird because I, uh, I, did, I did a bit of a deep dive into Scientology. And because uh, I just, I don't know, I was, I was channel surfing one night or what, well, okay, the, the 21st century of channel surfing is going through all of your streaming services. I was on Netflix, whatever. Anyway, I was on Netflix somewhere. came across Leah Remini's miniseries, which is, if you know who she is, right? She was, uh, I forget her story on The King of Queens and she had been born into Scientology and left and then became, has become a very vocal critic, an outspoken critic of the church. And the stories that were told coming out of that sound so eerily similar to this, where the educational neglect was so, I mean, you were brought into the church as a kid, you know, if your parents, you know, most of them would go and, you know, derive their living somehow from that, you would live in these housing units and the education you got was Scientology. And if, you know, there were stories of people leaving that in their teens and realizing they didn't know anything, like they had to go catch up on, you know, years and years of actual school because the Church of Scientology does not really value education except in their own very narrow scope. But I can tell you, as I can tell you for a fact that even inside of evangelical Christian circles, not even going as far as like the severity of Bill Gothard's cult, but there's still that sort of anti-intellectual bent. I, I find that a lot to where people, you know, especially if you're really, really, really hell-bent on, on forcing people to homeschool. I mean, you're Unless you're a you know PhD physicist, you're probably going to shortchange your kids somewhere along the lines in their STEM you know their STEM subjects. So I've gone beyond saying there's cult like tendencies, and I'm saying there are there are sects there are sects of these, and I think Gothard falls into this. There are cults. I mean, I just think I mean they're so controlling, they're so manipulative, they're so um, invasive into every single part of people's lives. Like you made you you mentioned early on that there was this place where where women especially were were being forced to seek approval for everything they did. Like you're supposed to submit, you know, to not just your husband, but all male authority 
on some level. It, to me, it's striking the similarities, and it's it, it, that should be enough. Uh, did, I don't know, had, had shiny, happy people come out when you wrote this book? Was, was that part of no, that? Or, it's too no, bad, right? Like, so. oh, it would have been just a treasure trove. Oh, no. It's, it was actually perfect timing. So my sources were not involved in the docuseries. So, uh, but now I, I was kind of worried that people would have trouble believing that Bogothar was the real thing. And now I've done like two events last week. I said, who are shiny, happy people? And half the room raised their hand. So a lot of people now outside of evangelicalism and conservative Christianity at least know a little bit. And that's been super helpful for me just to, to try to explain and say, okay, we have home base here some language. I wanted to add to what you were talking about in terms of uh, women and having to submit and jumping off from homeschooling. There became a movement called stay-at-home daughterhood that was kind of a solution to the problem of young women who were done homeschooling and wanted to pursue further education. Well, you, you don't want that. Like the universities, the university world is dangerous, especially for women. And so ministries is like a vision forum helped publish and then sold to their catalogs plenty of DVDs and books encouraging girls after they reached adulthood but before they were married to stay home as a stay-at-home daughter, live under their father's authority and practice homemaking skills, figure out how they're going to be those effective homemaking mothers and then wait until they go through a courtship, their father approved a husband, and, and then move on, to, move on that direction. So that was something like people like Vody Bachum was a big proponent of that. His daughter Jasmine wrote a book, which now she said, you know, I should have written that book at age 19. But, um, but there were these whole ministries that were very dedicated to not only defining gender roles, but solving these problems of, you know, like little, little outlets where people might go learn new things or might be exposed to other ways of living and kind of keep them in the fold. Well, I find this weird because, uh, so Nat and I are, are, are children of the 70s. So our parents um, were in college in the, in the 60s, right? During that uh, the beginning of the Jesus movement, which is a huge, a huge connection for Nat and I with different. And what I find really amazing and disheartening at the same time is, it's disheartening in general. I, I don't know how else to describe it, but women were actually encouraged to go to college. But for the specific reason of finding a really smart man to marry, <laughs> MRS degree. Right. So you would go to college, not to get a degree, but to find that smart guy, right? Who you would marry. So listen, John, don't, don't gloss over the MRS degree. That's amazing. How yes, have I never heard yes. that? I oh, you've well. never heard that? I've never, I have, I see how, wow, what a sheltered life. I, that, that's, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I just thought no, that. No, go ahead. That, that I deserved, think it's important. But it's not, it's funny and not funny. 
I mean, it's, it's, it's funny. It's a funny way to put it. But ask mom. I will tell you this, that when mom went to, mom was graduating high school, mom, mom was and is very smart. You know, I'm talking top of her class, brilliant woman. But her, her choices for college were small. Grandma did not want to send her to any place. So, so she ended up going to a very fun, very conservative private Christian college in Oregon. And, um, with a specific task, right? Which was to find a husband. Now, now mind you, she screwed that up and she met dad. So, (laughs) yeah. Because when my, when my mom met my dad, he was, uh, had just gotten out of the army. He rode motorcycles. He was not religious in the least. And she was like, ooh, that's everything my mom said I should avoid. I must marry mm-hmm. him. So, you yeah. know, so mm-hmm. she, that's how you know. <laughs> But, you know, she, but this notion of, I don't know, man, I just, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm still stuck on the MRS degree. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, I didn't make that up. <laughs> it, 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 it tickles me. Okay, let's talk about this. How it is so encoded that this is, this is something that's normal. That even, so in the state of Texas, by the way, and I, I, this is true in other states as well, uh, my wife could not go to a doctor tomorrow and have a tubal ligation without my participation. You'd go, well, bring your husband back and we'll talk about this. Are you fucking kidding me? And, and I, I didn't realize that was a thing and somebody brought that up and I'm like, holy crap, that's, and they're like, oh, it's not just Texas. It's several southern states in particular where women have to have you know, you, or, or at a young age, you couldn't go in at 20 and just, you know, have, have something done like that. I, I don't even know. I, obviously, there's, there's myriad reasons for that. But this, this ideal of women bearing children is so highly regarded and so seemingly uh, protected by, by some that it just, it creates this, it creates this thing where I have, I have a really good friend, he and his wife, um, they're, they're both atheists. They don't, they don't want kids. They just don't want to. They, they're like, we'd be terrible parents. We're selfish. We want to do the things we want to do. And they're like, like, we just, we just don't want, it's not the, what we want to do. We have nieces and nephews and there are children of plenty and we love kids. Uh, don't want our own. And they catch no end of hell. I think it's brilliant. I think, if, I think to, for me, I'm like, man, if you're, if you're that self aware, you know, there's how many people do you know who have kids? You're like, man, you should not have had kids. Like, oh my God, what the hell? Like, what were you, you know? And these, there's two people who are like self-aware enough to know, yeah, I'm just not, I'm not, uh, I'm not equipped for that. I don't know. I just, I just wonder about the culture because it does not just pervade these little tiny enclaves of evangelical Christians. It, it permeates and leaks out into every part of society in places you wouldn't expect to find it, right? Yeah. Well, and I think like we're, we're post row now. Yeah. So, which I never thought I'd see. We're living in a reality where a very powerful, largely Christian political base was able to, um, get someone in office who promised Supreme Court justices and this is where we are. And I mean, it was it was very plain with um, with the example of Donald Trump, which at that time, like after um, the Access Hollywood videos came out, and this comes up in the book too. But after hearing him say, you know, well, I can grab him by the pussy, which I do what I want. I'm a celebrity. Words like that. Hearing that 
from especially from these women who sacrificed so much to be good and trusted their leaders to then have Christian leaders excuse it and say, yes, but politically, he can get us the Supreme Court justices we need. And that, that trade-off is, is important. And it really um, affected some people's faith. It really made them question those leaders. And these are people who support or oppose abortion or land somewhere in between. But the the ability to preach for decades that you must behave in a certain way and that any sort of sexual activity outside of marriage is sin and then to just excuse it in a knee-jerk way, that was shocking to a lot of people. And, and underneath it all is this control over reproduction. It is. Well, and, and, my, and my disillusion for, for the way politics deal with this, right, was was, and Nat and I have talked about this and we brought this up on the podcast, the, the, the idios, the, the, it, I don't even know how to, to phrase this. Idiocy. The idiocy of the Republicans who were aghast, right? And needed everyone in the world to know that Bill Clinton got a Hummer in the Oval Office, right? And that it's, and it was detrimental to the character of the president that he could no longer be trusted, period, because that happened, right? And then we, then their, their heir apparent, whatever the fuck you want to call this guy. And I, 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 he says what you said, which is he can grab any, he can grab a woman by the pussy and it doesn't matter. He could shoot someone on, on the streets of New York and he would still win the election. And they're like, yeah, but. Yes, that all sounds kind of creepy and weird, but he's going to get us what we need at the end. So we're going to fight fire with fire and we're going to stand behind him. These are the same people who had an issue with a cigar and a stained dress in the Oval Office by a president who, yes, said, it all depends on what is, is. I get that. That was a weird moment, right? But he has, this president has blatantly said things that if Bill Clinton or Barack Obama had said, he'd have been out the next day. He'd have been out. He'd have been gone. And their, their idea is that the, the end of all the, what he's doing will be better if we just ignore the abuse. And this again connects us with the evangelical fundamentalist right and their ability. And we've seen this right time and time again. Pastors in authority abusing the women around them and getting away with it time and time again. I mean, what it, what it, and, and I'm, I'm probably going to misquote this, but the SBC, when they finally came out with their report on the sexual abuse of women within their church, they say it's, it's hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of pages, not thousands hundreds. of men. Hundreds of pages, of pages, right? Of men, not hundreds of people, hundreds of pages of abuse that continue to uh, happen and was silenced over and over again by the SBC. And that list was credibly accused and largely dependent upon public record. So if you go back to what we discussed earlier, 
with people and anyone, any sexual abuse survivor is hesitant to come forward. These cases are not handled well criminally across the board. But within a church and to pursue it enough that there are public records available and I have 205 pages of those pastors, some of whom were still working in churches, that's that's shocking. That is absolutely shocking. And I think one of the, um, for a lot, for some people, as they started to question, moments when these abusive pastors, when they got caught, basically caught, and they stood up in church and they confessed, the frequency with which the pastor who confesses is applauded, is given a standing ovation, and then the survivor is outcast. The survivor is smeared. She's done. And the faith community, she probably could use right then, sees her as Jezebel, sees her as having been the one who caused the sin. And he just goes back to work or he gets a job at a different church. Um, and that, that indiscrepancy, and that's very difficult for people to reconcile with and they shouldn't have to. They should not have to. It's, it's, so, it's, it's so insane. And I've seen this happen and I've seen this happen where, where it's like, oh my gosh, she's so brave. Like he just, oh, he's so transparent. Look at him. Look at him owning his, owning his mistake. And I'm like, okay, fine, own it, and then actually own the consequences of that mistake or of that action. Let's stop calling it a mistake. Um, but he like slipped and fell and raped somebody. I mean, you you made a choice to do something horrific. This happened in a church that I was a part of years ago, and a uh, it was a it was it happened in our school, but there was a thirty something year old very popular youth pastor slash coach who was 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 sexually abusing a 10th grader you well, I, I would you would believe you the the you know collective you 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 would be shocked at how much vitriol was leveled against this poor girl who was 15 years old and 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 accused of of everything from seducing him to stalking him to causing what happened to happen. Now, mind you, he, he did suffer consequences. He did go to jail. Um, he should have gone to jail. Um, but, but the initial reaction from leadership and everybody was not, look, like, get this dude out of here. Um, it was it was more of a defense. You know, less, they defended him initially. Um, and then in the student body even, you know, I'm a 10th grade teacher at the time. And the 10th, the kids in my class want to lambaste this girl. They want it. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah. Because they liked him. He was popular. He was charismatic. He was all these things. And, and it was much easier to, to demonize her than it was to, to demonize him. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's sad. I mean, I, and I think, it's, I think it's symptomatic of what led us to a place where, like, like you and John have both mentioned, where we could say as evangelical Christians that we pretty much betrayed all of our own ideals um, in a deal with the devil with this individual for the ultimate goal. I guess the I guess the issue of abortion was so important that you had to lay all your morality aside to try and get somebody in office who might trick their way into getting it done. But I think that's a stain that the evangelical church is going to it's gonna take a long time to to cleanse them of. I don't I don't that may not ever happen. I don't know. So I I think 
bringing it down to a, a more personal scale with the story you just told, I I think often there's this mutated understanding of sin that comes into play. So if he confessed, well, he's asking for grace. We have to give him grace. He's asking for forgiveness from his sins. And so that and the language people often use that feels easier to do. On the other side, the number of times people have told me that they could not tell. Um, they could not say who did what because that would be gossip. And gossip is a sin and gossip is a threat to the church community. That's almost seen as like that, that telling of the truth is seen as a greater sin than the, the person who actually did the abuse. Um, and, and the other thing I wanted to say, just as we were talking about like the, the great exchange to get Donald Trump in office. I, I don't think that's really a great surprise given like, hindsight as, and I'll get to this later in the book, but the drive toward Christian nationalism and that hope for dominion, that, that exists way downstream in a mother being told you need to produce babies so we have a bigger Christian population. And then all the way up to church leaders with great political influence trying to help sway lawmakers and help determine what laws we live under. And seeing the role of presidency as something given by God all of that, all of it's connected. Well, and I, I think we, I think we, we would be remiss to not also just. I know we're coming close to the end of this, and we want to uh, don't want to take up a bunch of your time, but I think we'd be remiss to not acknowledge where this can harm people of minorities even more so. I think we are more apt to believe the blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl who says that she was assaulted by. X, Y, Z, right? By, by whoever. And we are more apt to think that the minority, the African American, the Asian American, uh, because we like to fetishize different groups, different minorities, that they probably seriously, um, encourage this, this type of, um, uh, act. Uh, and then we also need to acknowledge the LGBTQIA plus community that, um, they are also because they are already on the outside, uh, that if anyone, um, specifically people in power, reach out and try to have some kind of relationship, inappropriate relationship with someone in that community, it's already their fault. They're already sinful, right? They're already, they're already wrong. So it's so easy for a church to, to diminish their, their, their role in this, uh, because, well, I didn't, you know, it was obviously Satan getting me involved in, uh, as a man liking a boy. Or, um, you know, like I said, the over-sexualization of certain minorities and, uh, fetishizing of these certain minorities. It's super easy to diminish their, their, their plight and say, well, they obviously, you know, encouraged that white male cisgender to, uh, go down the path. 
Uh, I, I just, I think it's, I think it's vital that we talk about that as well. Not, and, and this is nothing. I don't want to. I don't want to just. I don't want to sound like I am saying that what the majority of white women have dealt with, but there's a certain there's a certain group of people who are even more marginalized because uh, when they speak out, it's like, well, obviously you were the problem. No, and there are elements of this in the book, and it's something I struggle with because the the idea of I wanted to show the people who are called disobedient for speaking up. So within white evangelicalism, that was frequently white, formerly or currently white evangelical women. And part of the problem is in those early communities, it was majority white women. Um, Over time, some of the more outspoken voices did start to include people of color and women of color. And I've heard from those horses, this is like, they they never really felt like they fully fit in any way. And the, the, the quickness with which they can be dropped when they did start to question, that was doubly harmful because they understood why. They understood, I was just never really part of this in your eyes. I thought I was, I was dedicating my life to this. But it's it's different for me. Uh, for the LGBTQ community, and not to give away the whole like, toward the end, but last summer I went to um, the Great Homeschool Convention, and I had expected to run into the old school lessons on purity, like back in the nineties and the odds. And I went to a session on raising your young girls. And they mentioned purity a little bit, but it immediately jumped to great anxiety about uh, like about gender and gender roles and gender fluidity and transgender people. And that to me, and then I went to the next session having nothing to do on paper with gender and the number of references to the danger of transgender people, public school teachers asking your kid for their pronouns, room after room, day after day. And I think when I started this, I the notion of women's roles in good Christian women and good Christian men, that's a product of evangelicalism that's been preached for decades, really going back to early fundamentalism. But I think right now, some of the anxiety is, some of the anxiety we see around transgender people um, is because having those clear-cut categories has helped protect power for one group of people. And then the women are out here and the queer people are out here. And then, eh, really, we don't talk about it, but the people of color are out here too. Um, so when you question the idea of gender as it's been defined, really you're rattling at one of the basic premises that props up a lot of people's power. Um, and it's unfortunate because for a lot of reasons, but it normalizes a lot of transphobia and homophobia and hate that is treated as spiritual and justifiable. Um, and it's, 
it's it's just it's all very very sad. If you go back to the beginning of this podcast that so we've been going on for about two years, uh, you know, uh, I mistakenly now I'm going to say it said that abortion will never become anything more than a hot button issue for the Republicans because if they don't have a hot button issue, they can't get their their people into office. Well, I didn't realize how much hate and vitriol was going to be uh, pushed towards the LGBTQIA plus community. So once we had, we, once the Republicans had a new campaign, which is going after transgender people specifically, um, they no longer needed the red, the hot button issue of abortion. And all of a sudden, here we go. We got, we got laws changing, right? Because here's the new scare tactic. Who's, who's in the bathroom with you? That became the new scare tactic. And I did not see that coming. You know, in hindsight, I didn't see it. So I thought abortion was always going to be the Republicans hot button issue because they needed you to be afraid and vote for them. But I never thought they would do anything about it. And then when they got on this bandwagon of transgender, I mean, Florida is a, just a perfect example, right? And then, then they could push their campaigns towards making certain, uh, 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 abortions illegal, uh, taking away rights from women, um, because they had a new hot button issue. And I, and I have to say now, looking back, I, I did not see it. I didn't see it. I thought, I thought abortion would always be the hot button issue. And it's, it's, it's scary as hell. And for anyone in the evangelical church who doesn't think that they, these types of rules and laws that they're setting in place aren't coming after you specifically, watch out because they are. And you, you don't know it yet, but it's gonna, it's gonna affect the way you live your normal day to day life. And yeah, right now, yeah, we're going after transgender people, right? But it's, it's, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna bite everybody in the ass. But the tactic that they employ is the tactic they've always employed, right? I mean, scares the shit out of you. Well, but, but more specifically, they, they, they target this issue at kids. I remember, yes. I remember. It's when, always you know, about what, in, what about in, the kids? In the, in the, in the pre, you know, in the days before Roe v. Wade was overturned, um, so much of the argument from the right was, it was, okay, yeah, fine, abortion was bad, but there was so much fear about how your kids were going to get abortions and you wouldn't even know about it because of the privacy laws that had been, you know, so I remember there being tremendous amount of fear that your 14 year old, 15 year old, somebody, one of your minor children could go, you know, have this procedure done. And they wouldn't have to tell you about it. But look at the way they're attacking. I, I think I think we've come far enough down the road with um, with gay folks, right? Um, that I think it's no longer as as um, productive to to harp about that. But the new group of people that seem to be that you can attack with impunity are transgender folks, because I still think even inside of more progressive communities, that's still a, a that's still a segment of that community that we know the least about, that we, you know, that, that don't fit any of our, um, our categories. And we don't know, you know, I think even amongst people, I've, we've had guests on the show who are transgender and, and I, I, I consider myself pretty progressive and I still find myself going, okay, what's the best way to address this issue? How do I be more sensitive about this? Because I don't know enough about it. Um, and that's a group you can attack, I think when there's that much mystery surrounding it. And that's, there's, there's people still trying desperately just to get the right language. Um, 
So, it, and, and when this issue has passed at some point, don't worry, John, they'll find a new one. I mean, I mean, go back a hundred years and they were, you know, left-handed people were, were, were bad. So, I mean, we'll, we'll find a new enemy at some point. It's, it's fine. Don't stress about it. <laughs> what? We'll just go after disobedient women. I mean, really, that's uh, uh, again line. I mean, <laughs> gotta come. we got to bring it full circle, right? Um, man, I, I, I have enjoyed this. Um, I really have. I, I always love talking to smart people. Um, I really, really always enjoy um, listening to people who are who are, who are passionate about what they about what they study and what they write about. So that that's been amazing. Thank you so much. The the book again, by the way, disobedient women. I forgot the tagline, by the way, which is fantastic. How a small group of faithful women exposed abuse, brought down powerful pastors, and ignited an evangelical reckoning. Evangelicals, the reckoning is coming, uh, and it can't come (laughs) soon enough. Any any parting words before we uh, we sadly have to say goodbye? Uh, No, just thank you for this interview, and um, I I really appreciate any chance to elevate these stories. The only bit that I didn't kind of get to point to was just how much work many of these women's um, advocates, um, survivors who became advocates, have put into building online uh, communities to help talk about these realities. And that's what's made other people see them as disobedient. That's what's caused other people to see them as threatening. But they've done that not making any money doing it purely out of moral motivation. And I think some of that does come from the their roots of their religious upbringing. And I think some of that also is just horror at things that are just so blatantly wrong. So there's there's some power too in this story and there's some reclaiming of that power. And so beyond, you know, obviously linking to your book and making sure people connect with your book, uh, um, I'm going to do my due diligence to connect with all these different blog posts that you mentioned, all these websites, uh, because I think not only is your book, which it is, it's, it's relevant. It's, it needs to be read, but these people who are being beyond brave and stepping out and saying, Hey, this is, this is what happens. Now, this is what has happened. Uh, I think their voices need to be heard as well. And if they're brave enough to put it out there, I think we should be brave enough to listen and read it too. So, um, I will get, I will get as many of the links out of the book so we can connect to those blog posts and those websites, uh, for people to connect with these people who have, um, have been brave enough to speak out against what has happened to them and to their, to their siblings. Uh, to the people around them. I think it's important that we, we acknowledge their voices, uh, not only within the book, but within what they are continuing to do. And I think that's, I think that's very important. So we'll, we'll definitely add that to the show notes. So people who are listening, check out the show notes, not only purchase the book, but check out these websites, these blog posts of these, of these women who have been, have bravely stepped out and said, this is, this is what's wrong with the, within the evangelical movement or even broader than that, right? So, um, yeah, we'll definitely do that. I would, I, I would also suggest buy a book or two, buy, buy 10 copies, um, start a, start a little uh, group. If you're still in church, start a little Bible study of troublemaking women. I think that yeah. would be amazing. Mm-hmm. 
and just oh, yeah. call it that. Yeah. Call it disobedient women. We're meeting every Wednesday night to talk about how we can disrupt the patriarchy. Um, That's you know, amazing. In the name of Jesus. <laughs> I think that would be phenomenal. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you, Power of and, and, uh, So uh, I will just add, there's a group that is buying coffees and strategically leaving them um, within one of these communities just to uh, make sure women have access to it who otherwise might not have heard about it. So there's it. some grassroots stuff well, here's, happening. Here's yeah. a good idea. That's yeah. a good idea because how many, how many of these churches have those quote unquote free libraries right out in front of their mm-hmm. out in front of their churches yeah. just accidentally on purpose put a copy of this book into those into those free libraries uh, that would be an access to someone who maybe needs this book but doesn't know yet they need this book I think that's a really brilliant idea of a way of like subverting yeah I think I, I, so yeah I, I, I think that's a great idea I am I am I think I'm going to do that. I know of at least three or four churches in my area that have the little free libraries in front of their churches. I think they're going to get a new book. Awesome. <laughs> a little, thank a you. little asymmetrical warfare. I like it. Yeah. It's the best. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again. Thank you so, so much for, for taking the time and hanging out with us. We appreciate you. We, like I said, we'll, we'll make sure that we do our best to, to promote the book and you know, continued success. We, we hope everything goes great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.